being transparent about who you are, what your deficiencies are, what your strengths are, and what your expectations are. You know, that's that's what sort of builds, I think, an understanding among the workforce that, that reports up to you, the folks you work with, and the folks you work for, is that character, competence, and credibility. I, I think, you know, the only way you're going to convince folks that you have those three components for leadership is if you're authentic. And the way to lose all three is to try and pretend you're something you're not. Want to boost your productivity and decision making? Get vital insights for each episode delivered directly to your inbox. A great resource whether you've listened to the episode or not. Go to bidfanning.com slash insight. Welcome back to Lead the Team with number one best-selling author and in-demand corporate trainer, Ben Fanning. On this podcast, the world's most innovative senior leaders share their top success strategies to motivate your direct reports, cultivate your top leaders, and accelerate your career. Let's get started. Here's Ben. Lead the Team Nation. I've got a great interview coming up for you today with Adam S. Lee, who is Dominion Energy's Vice President and Chief Security Officer. He directs the development and implementation of corporate security policies and procedures designed to protect physical and cyber assets. He's liaison with all outside government and law enforcement agencies on physical and cyber security matters for Dominion Energy. And he joined in this role back in 2018. Now, if you're not familiar with Dominion Energy, y'all, you should be. They're headquartered in Richmond, Virginia, and have over 7 million retail energy customers across 13 states. Yes, I am one of those customers. The power is powering this interview today. Um, and as the energy supplier to the Pentagon and Norfolk Naval Base and Shipyard and many other essential pieces of the U.S. national security enterprise, Dominion Energy is a unique, critical national asset. Now, y'all, it gets even better here because before joining Dominion Energy, Adam served as the special agent in charge of the FBI, that's the Federal Bureau of Investigations in the Richmond Division. Now, in 2018, he retired from the FBI, and after a 22 career, uh, 22 year career, he focused where he focused on criminal counterterrorism, counterintelligence, and cyber investigations. And we're going to dive into that in just a second. In addition, he specialized in cases involving corruption of elected and appointed government officials. Woo, the foreign the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, the antitrust and antitrust violations, Lee previously served as the FBI's executive over its national public corruption and civil rights programs. Yes, it's going to be great, y'all. He he belongs to the FBI's Domestic Security Alliance Council, the Department of Homeland Security's Classified Intelligence Forum, as a member of the National Government Business Executive Forum. He sits on the Hampton Sydney College. Uh, college's Wilson Center for Leadership. Man, it just like goes on and on. So many great stuff here. He's also a, a passionate supporter of our nation's veterans and leads Dominion Energy's veteran resource group. Y'all, this is going to be fantastic. Adam, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks, Ben. It's great to be with you. Now, all these accolades and amazing experiences, but I've got one question for you to start with us. Who is Skunk Baxter? Okay. He's one of my favorite, favorite guys. He too is a member of the Government Business Executive Forum. 
Uh, he is an advisor uh, on the Hill in Washington, D.C. He advises DOD on national security uh, matters, especially mm -hmm. those dealing with technology. Oh, yeah. And one other thing, uh, he was uh, uh, lead guitarist for the Doobie Brothers. He was one of the founding members of Steely Dan. He was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame just a few short years ago and uh, one of the greatest guitar players in the world. So that, you know, he's a, he's a, a guy with skills I couldn't imagine to have. So I love all those bands, by the way. And I was, you know, I was, I was looking at a, a really cool post that Adam made over on LinkedIn and I immediately started laughing. And then I was in awe of this guy, Skunk Baxter, who's, I guess you were, you were at one of his performances and Skunk yeah. was just railing on the guitar singing China Grove, which I love that rock and roll song. And I mean, and then he, and then Adam's explaining all of his cybersecurity credentials and stuff like that. Like, how does a guy who's touring and is in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame have time to be so engaged in national security matters? Yes. Well, and if you watch that clip, not only is he just tearing up China Grove, as you know, he, he can do uh, magnificently, but he was doing it in a country uh, uh, style with sort of a Hawaiian guitar feel. It, it was absolutely amazing. It was just so phenomenal to watch. Just yeah. Terrific. Anyway, that's fun. So, so do y'all go way back, or, or what? No, that? no. We're we're uh, just colleagues uh, in in the GBEF, and I met uh, him through those events. And every year I speak. So the GBEF has a cohort uh, uh, component to the CES show, the Consumer Electronics Show, uh, okay. CESB, so CES government, and. He, he's participated in that with me years over year over year and uh, I speak at that every year and so we, we just got to know each other and uh, and I'm very fortunate to get tickets to his shows when he plays yeah. small venues up in Northern Virginia. Well, I can't wait for you to get inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame too. Like Scott. <laughs> you'll, be, you'll be waiting a while then. <laughs> <laughs> All right well Gil, so so let's so let's dive in here. We got a lot to cover. don't have a lot of time to do it. Um, so I got to start with your FBI background because that's just, I mean, the role of dominion sounds interesting, but this, you know, 20 plus years in the FBI, I mean, come on. So one of the things that, you know, leaders find themselves in stressful situations a lot as leaders and, and whatnot, but you've probably been in some pretty serious, stressful situations yourself. What's one of the most stressful times that, that you can share with us? that you experienced in the FBI and, and, and what are some strategies and advice that you'd give to leaders? Sure. Uh, ben, so I mean, you, you kind of said it, I think, uh, you know, one of the things about the FBI is you probably can't have much of an FBI career without encountering a lot of stressful situations. Uh, as, as we discussed a bit, you know, I spent seven years on an FBI SWAT team on the Southwest border. Um, you know, I worked, I uh, specialized really in my career on, uh, on, on investigating white collar crime and elected officials uh, in, in corruption, mm. um, civil rights. I was in the civil rights program uh, at FBI headquarters, leading that program as a national executive. You know, one of the things as you sort of build your career, I think if you ask anybody uh, what the 
sort of what the theme or hallmark of Adam Lee's career in the FBI is I'm, I'm a guy who broke big rocks into little rocks for the FBI. I'm, I'm hmm. sort of the field guy. I'm, I spent all my career in operational programs um, and spent most of my career in the field. Very little of it was spent at FBI headquarters. And, I, and that, uh, that reputation, cool. I think, uh, go <laughs> ahead. In the field. In the field. Yes. yes. That's it. That glorious. sounds like where the action is. Well, the glorious field. I, you know, it's there are many tribes in the bureau. I think I am definitely of the field operational tribe. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, back in uh, back in 2017, uh, you know, I, I had the privilege of working under some really incredible leaders, uh, very different leaders from Louis Free through Bob Mueller to Jim Comey. Um, each having a very different style, uh, learned a lot from each one. Um, hmm. But uh, you know, and for, president- and, and for those of you, those who don't know who those people are, how would you sort of sum that group up? Yes, all stars, each, each serving as uh, director of the FBI. Um, that's the, the most top. famous. Famous, yeah, that's the very top. <laughs> um, you know, the most famous director being J. Edgar Hoover. The, the father of, of the FBI. Uh, so they sat uh, in, in the, the chair, uh, you know, ceremoniously mm-hmm. established by J. Edgar Hoover. Um, each, you know, incredibly accomplished uh, men, each uh, with a distinctive style, and we can go into that too. Um, I think each with a very uh, clearly sort of formulated approach to leadership. Um, and, and for me, as you know, I, I did spend a lot of time interacting, uh, certainly with, with Director Comey, uh, but also Director Mueller, just by nature of, uh, by virtue of the nature of the cases I was involved in. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, in 2017, when uh, President Trump decided that uh, he was interested in moving the FBI in a different direction, and uh, terminated the directorship of, of, of Jim Comey. Uh, I was one of the folks that, that he wanted to speak to to replace Jim Comey. Um, you know, the, the reason for that, I had a, a, a relationship a bit with uh, Jeff Sessions, who was the attorney general at the time. Uh, the, the AG had a keen interest in the field operations of the FBI. Obviously, he was very familiar with how the FBI operated in Washington, D.C., but he wanted to really get a taste of, of how um, the FBI administered, uh, you know, its programs and achieved its mission in the field. And so um, through mutual friendships and things, I spent some time with uh, then AG Sessions and, and sort of um, explaining to him how we interacted with local agencies, how we administered task forces, how we added value um, to the criminal programs, which were things, you know, mm-hmm. the, the violent crime issues at the time were things he were, was very interested in. Um, so that relationship, I think, uh, sort of put me on the radar for him. And so uh, I, I interviewed several times with with AG Sessions and Rod Rosenstein, who folks uh, are likely familiar, was his deputy at the Department of Justice. Um, and through those interviews, I that landed me in the Oval Office, uh, uh, speaking to President Trump about uh, that potential. Um, and uh, I think when when you asked me, 
what the most stressful moment in my career, just sort of being in that environment, you know, across the resolute desk from the president of the United States, talking, you know, essentially having a job interview, um, that, that was probably the apex of, of stress in, in my 22 years at the FBI. Yeah, so you just show up. So you've had all these amazing experiences, these stressful situations on SWAT teams, but interviewing in the Oval Office tops the list. <laughs> I think I think it I think it does. That's great. Uh, that's great. So what? So yeah. that's like the ultimate job interview. What? Uh, what was that like? Getting ready for that? Yeah. So there there really wasn't any getting ready. Uh, it was. Uh, you you're either know, ready or you're not at that point. Is you're that either the deal? ready or you're not. Yeah. And huh. and uh, you know they they obviously at that level the White House and the and the Department of Justice have staff that are doing all the vetting and they're, you know, they know pretty much everything about you by the time you sit down in the chair. Um, I very much enjoyed my, my conversations with uh, then AG Sessions. Uh, I thought he was, he was very thoughtful. I thought he was really interested in digging down into the violent crime issue in the United States and, and trying What's to- What's a bionic crime? violent crime or vi okay they said by okay vi sorry yeah. violent crime we know what violent crimes are violent those are crime. a good thing to get into <laughs> to see what's happening with that sorry yes yes yeah so, i gotcha um and and i think you know there were a lot of you know a lot of the uh things that were of interest to him were things that i i thought were things that should be focused um the mission of the FBI should be focused around some of those things. So we, we saw some of those issues the same way. And so those were very good conversations. By the time I, I sat with the president, um, you know, the vice president was there, Mike Pence and Don McGahn and others. So we had an interesting conversation uh, sort of about, about what uh, leadership, I mean, it, it, you know, everybody involved in that was, was gracious and professional, despite all of the, well, so what was it? Uh, so, you, so you talked about leadership. What, what was the big takeaway leadership wise, or what were they asking you about from, from a sure, leadership? Yeah. So I think, I think the, the biggest takeaway, obviously I didn't get the job and the right, <laughs> the right person did, uh, you know, Chris uh, yeah. Ray, I think is a, is a tremendous director, uh, obviously brilliant, brilliant guy with a big job. Um, there's a lot of change going on in the country and, and, you know, certainly mm -hmm. when you change administrations, I think it speaks to a lot to leadership. If you're somebody who can survive a change of, of political parties. Um, so, you know, the, the, uh, you know, the leadership lesson there for me, uh, number one, just be absolutely, um, genuine and transparent, even when you're, you know, interviewing with the most powerful man on earth. I think if you go in and try to pretend that uh, either you, you have a knowledge base that's different than the one you've developed over your career or um, that uh, you know, you're, you're something you're not. I mean, that's how I sort of you know, presented myself as, listen, if you want somebody who's spent a career you know, spanning every sort of you know, promotional stop along the way in the field, I, you know, I'm somebody to look at because I think uh, uh, I've been there in those situations. If you want somebody who's very savvy to how, you know, policy is made in Washington, D.C. and and somebody who who is really part of the Washington, D.C. establishment, I'm probably not your guy. 
Um, and so, the, you know, those conversations, and I think there, there was an appreciation of that. Um, clearly, the safer choice was somebody who was steeped in the culture and process and things in Washington, D.C. And I think, mm -hmm. uh, you know, if I was going to make that choice, I'd probably make the same one. Um, but I'm, I was grateful, frankly, that they were looking at somebody that would have been a departure from the historical choices of FBI director. Get a simple tool to approximate your cost of turnover in 10 seconds or less. Right now, go to benfanning.com slash turnover. Did you know the average cost of turnover is $235,975 per employee per year? If you're like most leaders, you don't know your number. Go to benfanning.com slash turnover right now and download this simple tool to start getting a handle on this catastrophic cost. Yeah, I love that. And a lot of a lot of great wisdom in that story. So here you are interviewing with the president of the United States and you fall back on is like your authenticity and just being transparent about your background. Uh, right. Which I suspect you probably couldn't BS around too much because they know all your background being in the FBI anyway. But, sure. but you know, br bringing who you are because you knew you were going up against for the interview process. So people really from a, that were some pretty high profile people too. Uh, but you really went with your authenticity, you know, and it sounds like you really stand behind that. So you kind of, even though you didn't win the position, you kind of won the interview because it sounds like you represented yourself in a really transparent way. And I think so many leaders get caught up in that. They think, Hey, this is my big moment. I need to bring more than what I've ever been able to bring in the past or change the narrative or something like that. But that's, yeah, I think that's, I think Ben, that's very, very well put. I, you know, if I, uh, you know, if I was to sort of cite a success in that process, and I think, you know, I didn't get the job, but I think I did have success because, um, you know, there were a lot of opportunities that sort of sprung from that uh, for me. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, you know, I am, you know, com for, for Washington, D.C. and, you know, the, the sort of, um, you know, value principles put on, you know, where you went to school and, and, you know, how, you know, what law firms you worked for in between and before public service and all of these kinds of things. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I did not, I'm a state college guy. I'm a guy who dreamt as a young kid of being an FBI agent or a CIA case officer. And, you know, that that's all the way down to the DNA. And it, and I think through my career, I've sort of exhibited um, an enthusiasm mm -hmm. Uh, for for that. And um, I think it's paid off. And I think that's, you know, there's a lesson there for folks, you know, you cited it as authenticity. I think, you know, if you, you can leverage who you are, if you've built a craft or you built hmm. uh, your career around success at a craft and credibility um, that, you know, it will pay dividends if you stay true to that. And if, if you, um, not only are honest with yourself about that, but also with the folks that you work with and that you lead. Hmm. So let's talk about that. So leadership. So you start, so I, and I want to dig into like your early, early days too, because I'm curious about that when you made the leap to join the FBI and you dreamed of it early on and what led to that. But I also don't want to miss out on the fact that you've, you've, you've worked in the FBI for so long. So you're, you've probably developed some guiding leadership principles that you used with your team. 
And also, you know, working so high up in the FBI uh, with these leaders, you know, what's maybe something you took away from that? So I guess what's, you know, what's some leadership advice you'd have for people that, that you've picked up along the lines in the FBI? And then what did you maybe pick up from, from some other people? Sure. Um, you know, I, I mentioned uh, three big influencers for me. Um, you know, mm-hmm. those, those folks, when you're, even when you're a special agent in charge leading a field office, with an expansive territory, you know, the director of the FBI is, is going to be a major influence on you because they're very public and they're very uh, present uh, for executives in the, in, the, in the organization. So each of them uh, clearly uh, influenced my leadership, uh, you know, in, in the FBI. I think it would be um, silly to say that you could serve as a special agent in charge and not be influenced by the director. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, it's one of those things that I think um, the FBI puts such, such an emphasis and focus on leadership. It's a paramilitary organization. Uh, the, the mission space of the FBI is larger than any other agency in the United States in terms of what its authorities are. Mm-hmm. across Title 18 of the United States Code, we can really investigate virtually anything um, that, that touches federal jurisdiction, uh, unlike other agencies that are specialized at the border, specialized in immigration, specialized in narcotics. Yeah. We, we can kind of do everything. Across all boundaries with that. Yeah, across it's it all, amazing. Right. Yeah. And then, you know, after 9-11, it's not just the focus on crime problems, but now it's really a national security and an intelligence agency as well. So, so just the amount of uh, opportunity to observe leadership in a whole variety of contexts under a lot of stress and scrutiny uh, is, is fairly unique in the FBI. You might see it in the military, but I think um, it's a place that's a sort of a, a leadership, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a great place as a student of leadership to observe it, I will say. Mm, yeah. Um, you know, things not to do. I, you know, one of the things that, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Stanley McChrystal, his, his McChrystal group and the works that they're putting out. I, I think, uh, you know, for me, that's a great resource for leadership. It's sort of my book of the month club. They come up with these books and I'll have my leaders here at Dominion read them and that sort of thing. Um, but, you know, I've experienced, you know, the the bullies, you know, the folks that put taps on their shoes and shave their head and squint and scowl at you and, and make you feel unworthy of, of their time and presence. Mm-hmm. And then I've experienced, uh, you know, the, the leadership of, you know, transparency, you know, the, mm. the leadership of team building, right? Where you assemble your senior leaders and say, hey, each of you fills a gap for me and I need you to work with me to, to build those synergies as a team. And I sit in the big chair and you have to lead up and, and be aware of the fact that ultimately I'm going to have to own these decisions that we're going to um, mm. discuss and interrogate and you know tear apart and put back together and then ultimately leave together shoulder to shoulder as a support you know, element for these decisions. But uh, you know, that, that obviously is a kind of leadership that I'm most attracted to and where I found the greatest uh, degree of success. Um, but I've experienced all of the above, you know, and um, 
you know, I, I've really been in my career, I think, uh, sort of a, a student of leadership hmm. to the extent where even now at, you know, 53 years old in a second private sector career, I'm still learning and still observing hmm. the folks that I work around and, and for and how they lead. And I think that's what really kind of makes folks careers most successful is never, never thinking that you're, you've got, you've cracked the code of leadership, but you always have something to learn. What's your most memorable leadership lesson? Um, you know, it's, it's funny because the, the most memorable leadership lesson, I think, you know, the, the, it's it's always for me the the horror stories the bad stories are the ones that most define your leadership it's like i'm never going to be like that uh man or woman i'm i'm going to do it <laughs> those are the ones that seem to stay we have a negativity bias as a yes. human species so we're going to be attracted to that probably right yes yes we do yeah so what and, is it well i i actually had uh an individual i worked with I uh, worked for at the at the bureau, and this was somebody that when I was in the lower ranks, um, I, I sort of admired because they were a very big presence. Um, and then and then my career progressed, and I was later reunited with that person in a much more intimate sort of way because I had promoted up, and now we're we're closer. And for, and I had no idea that you know this. I don't know if it was. I hailed in the bureau sort of from the old J. Edgar Hoover sort of lawyers and accountants. You know, I'm a lawyer by, by mm -hmm. training and, 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 you know, certifications, but, uh, you know, I don't know if it was that or just didn't like the cut of my jib or what it was, but, you know, I, I scheduled time to sort of have a career moment and this, uh, this fellow just, uh, you know, he, he, scowled at me and he he just sort of said you know listen you're you're not my guy you're you're not you need to you need like to you just met me yeah right and, <laughs> you're not my guy and, what you know and and i you know i it, it i was crestfallen and obviously terrified i mean you you know especially in an organization like the fbi again paramilitary this is somebody who outranked me and uh here he is sort of uh, it was a telephone conversation, but, you know, just telling me straight up, mm -hmm. you know, as so long as I'm here, you're done. And there, there, and I couldn't wrap my brain around what, what had precipitated that. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so, so for me, and it, clearly there was something personal, there was a personal dislike. Um, you know, I, it, he was somebody that I really had no respect for in the in the larger sense there, you know, leadership being character, competence and credibility. Mm -hmm. And you don't you don't cultivate any of those three by being a bully and, and being a, a sadist uh, to the people who, who work for you. So, you know, but it did teach me that, you know, folks need to know where I stand because I would have passed a a lie detector test that this guy had no problem with me and I would be able to rely on the, the legend of my career and walk in there and have a productive conversation. And he, I pose no threat to him. Um, he's a, he's a accomplished leader himself in the organization. And, you know, I, I walked in there and, and just 
you know, I'm a stubborn guy by nature, so he didn't slow me down. But those are the kinds of things that can make somebody become so fearful and risk averse mm -hmm. that you could take somebody who could be a very highly productive employee. And, and when, when you just, you know, obliterate their confidence and the trajectory they think they're on. And, you know, it, it, it was, a again, it was a, a remarkable moment for me. I've never had another one like it. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, it was one that, that, you know, if I had been a different person or had a different maybe support network or I, you know, needed needed some kind of a, a validation from from that leader. I mean, that, that could have just absolutely changed the whole spectrum of opportunity for me. And yeah, yeah. Uh, and you saw what was going on. And I think that. Yeah. And, and acknowledging, OK, I see this guy's strategy because you've probably seen it before. And it's like this philosophy of what is the best way to get something out of someone performance wise? And there may be, right. I feel like the old school mentality is sort of like, like a drill sergeant, right? We're going to break you down to build you up. Yeah. I'm not saying that was this person's psychology. Cause it sounds like you would just sort of there to break you down uh, right. and to send a message versus saying, Hey, I don't know much about Adam other than maybe what I've heard or read or three, whatever, Let's see what he can do in challenging yep. you to deliver versus saying, you're not my guy. It's over. It's right. like closing the door before it's, you know, if people leap, sometimes it's like leaping to these conclusions can be a really dangerous thing as a leader. Ben, you, um, you are so right about that. And it's funny. Um, I've had many leaders uh, who were the break you down to build you up type. In fact, when I was the, uh, the national program executive for corruption and civil rights. And this was at a time where in our portfolio, you know, we had the Trayvon Martin case uh, in the civil rights program. We had the governor of Virginia case. We had um, some other very, very high profile cases at the time. So it was a, it was a high stress environment. And the then assistant director of the criminal investigative division where I worked was a very very tough boss and and it's mm -hmm. i think i think it's a very important distinction to make okay the tough the tough bosses are gold because they will pull the very best out of you and and he was one of the most honorable men i encountered at the fbi and tough tough as can be but he my performance i think was was a an absolute you know, product of his demanding that level of performance. And consequently, at the end of the day, treated me like gold, supported me. Mm -hmm. And I, and there's a, there's a lesson there too, where, you know, the cream puff boss thing is not the, uh, you know, that that's not the opposite of that bully, you know, uh, mm -hmm. you know, authoritarian, you know, we have a, at Dominion, we have a, a, poly, a no jerks policy, which I love. And, uh, you know, just just being a jerk, it, you know, being a tough boss is not being a jerk. Um, and the opposite of, of the jerk is not a cream puff. In fact, I would say the opposite of the jerk is a very predictable, transparent, supportive, tough boss. Yeah, I love that. So for listeners now, making that a thing, so maybe saying, well, I, I want to be in that tough category. Uh, but I don't want to be you know, too, it's almost like a continuum or, or a spectrum of, of, of what's going to create it. So if they want to be a little bit tougher as a boss, 
but not go too far to where you're breaking people down. What's, what's your recommendation or advice to people that really want to sort of be in that, in that sweet spot? I think, I think it's really important to read your people and Mm -hmm. The because there there are all kinds of books and, and things, a whole leadership by walking around and and all of this stuff, you know, getting to know your folks. And, and that might be exactly the right approach. But then there are also people who really aren't looking for a boss that dives into their personal life and knows them personally and all of that. I am somebody mm-hmm. that doesn't respond particularly well to that. I, I respond well to what we've been talking about, which is transparency, uh, effective feedback on, on performance, mm-hmm. right? Focused on mission, standing shoulder to shoulder with you on mission, whether they're leading from above or frankly, leading from below, leading as a colleague, because you lead from where you stand. If you're, if you're really thinking about leadership, you mm-hmm. can be an individual contributor in a large organization like the FBI or Dominion Energy, and you're still in a leadership position Mm-hmm. Because you're leading your projects, you're leading the things that you've been assigned. You're leading. Uh, if you're in a work unit, you're hopefully you're you're leading by being attuned and being a, a high-performing individual in that work group. But um, you know, for me, I, I think that. And, and again, I'm not saying this is exactly right for everybody because I do know there are folks that want to you know, have the volunteerism with their boss on the weekend and they want to get to know each other. They want, you know, an occasional uh, lunch or happy hour or something like that. Um, And all of that is wonderful if that's what your folks need from you. And I think staying plugged in and being present for for what their needs are Mm -hmm. uh, is is important. Uh, But there is no, I, I don't think there is no recipe for success there. You just have to really get to know your folks and what drives them and makes them successful. Yeah, I love how you sort of hit the, hit it, hit the nail on the head with read your people. Uh, know, uh, be flexible with your leadership style to bring forth the best. And how do you know? Well, you talk to your people. And you can't get into their personal life necessarily because some people don't want to go there, but get to know them, understand right. how they respond. And then, and then craft your leadership individually like that. I mean, that's a, I think that's a, that's a very powerful way to do it. Cause I think so many books, so many leadership trainings, I mean, we, we provide a lot of leadership training and it's so easy to sort of get caught up in, Hey, this is how you lead. But if you, right. if you're always, this is how I do it, then you're missing the, the, the important nuance right. uh, to, to be flexible on an individual level. Uh, so Let's see here. What one of the questions I, I love to ask, and I want to hear your perspective on this. When's the time you had an unexpected twist or failure in your career, and how did it lead to your success on down the road? Sure. So, you know, Ben, we talked about my my journey into the FBI. I was a young lawyer. I fantasized about a career either in the FBI or the agency, the CIA. Mm-hmm. Those were the two agencies I applied for, I only applied for the two. And if I didn't get into either one, I would be, uh, I'd be a lawyer and I'd just be out in California. Um, but, you know, I was really attracted in the FBI to, uh, to, to the, the criminal mission. You know, I, I really liked uh, sort of the integrity mission of public corruption. But, you know, being a lawyer and, and sort of understanding the pre-9-11 FBI as being largely a criminal investigative organization, 
Um, that was really what I was was keen on pursuing in the FBI. I was really using my law degree, um, you know, investigating corrupt politicians, scam artists, uh, people stealing retirement funds, and and that kind of stuff. That's that's where I was really focused uh, when I joined the FBI. And really, that has been largely my subject matter expertise in the in the FBI was doing those kinds of cases. Um, but then September 11th. 2001 uh, arrived. And for mm -hmm. many of us, especially uh, those of us that sort of hailed from that old school G-man notion of, of FBI work, um, it turned mm -hmm. our world upside down. Uh, we, we saw a threat to the United States domestically that uh, was something that we really hadn't sort of put into the lexicon of the FBI's mission Hmm. Certainly not as line investigators. Um, there were some analysts, and I'm sure you've seen the reporting over the years, that there were folks who saw this um, from the Cobar Towers bombing and other things, you know, Kenya and yep. Tanzania and the embassies there. They saw this escalation um, and thought it was really only a matter of time till it hit the homeland. But we weren't really thinking about that as we sort of went about our our daily lives pre 9-11 as FBI agents. And hmm. so 9-11 hit and I was in San Diego and I recall I was driving in, you know, I got up early. If, if you remember the attacks were about the opening of business on the East coast, which would have been six o'clock in the morning. And I was driving in, it was very early. And I remember hearing it on the radio that a, an aircraft had uh, collided with, with the towers in New York city. And, um, you know, I'm just in my mind's eye, I'm picturing a small Cessna, you know, mm -hmm. sightseeing and, and, you know, and then over time, as I was driving in, it became more and more clear that it was a, a substantial event. And my supervisor uh, called me on the phone. He was calling everybody and he said, hey, scrap the workout. Just come on in and, and come on up. We got to, you know, sort of wrap our heads around this because this appears to be a terrorist attack. So uh, we spent uh, days and days and days, um, everything from, now you have to picture at the time, the San Diego field office where I was assigned, sat on a bluff um, right across the street from a municipal airport, which is important to the story. But every single day we would watch planes fly right over our building and land at the municipal airport. It was just a a feature of, hmm. of where our building was and every single day. It was actually kind of a neat thing uh, prior to, to the attacks of 9-11. Before 9-11, yeah. Way Before 9-11. Cool. Well, <laughs> so there were still planes in the air in the attack. So, you know, we were watching these planes come in and it had a much more menacing feel um, when, you know, we know that uh, that's the, the, the mechanism of attack that, mm -hmm. that was used against us. So... Um, what, what became uh, sort of my life for many, many months after 9-11, we had in San Diego um, two of the hijackers uh, who had visited with uh, the mastermind of the coal bombing, another one of those events leading up to 9-11 in Malaysia. Hmm. And then they came in through Los Angeles and down to San Diego, and they were sleeping on the floor of an individual named Abdus Sattar Sheikh who was the head of the San Diego Islamic Foundation um, there. 
who is also an FBI source. And all of this is written up in the, uh, in the 9-11 Commission report. And the, the intelligence community had these two, Nawaf al-Hazmi and Khalid al-Madar were their names. And the NSA had the meeting with that mastermind of the coal bombing in Malaysia. The CIA had them on a watch list and ticked them coming through Los Angeles. And the FBI had the source on whose floor they were sleeping uh, while they were taking flight lessons at that municipal airfield right across the street from the FBI field office. Hmm. So uh, oh. as this event was progressing, the, uh, the SAC uh, of the San Diego uh, division had tapped me to sit with the Sheikh and another FBI agent uh, together, we sat with the Sheikh for a three-day interview, sort of extracting from him all of the, you know, lifestyle uh, patterns and, you know, identifying every computer and cell phone that these folks had used mm -hmm. while they were staying with him, taking their flight lessons, ultimately hijacking a plane and flying it into the Pentagon. Um, so these were, these were things, as I dreamt of a career with the FBI, uh, I never in a million years would have imagined myself now embroiled in, you know, the worst uh, domestic attack since Pearl Harbor in the United States. So, uh, again, all of this, all of my work product that, you know, I, I did have a sense of sort of the historical significance of it and the fact that this was going to be scrutinized for years to come. So, you know, you're, you're very careful about uh, your work in the FBI because everything ultimately is discoverable for court and you have to, you're going to get cross-examined by every single page of, of report that you write potentially if it goes to trial and all of this. So you're very circumspect about um, what you record in your case files. Mm -hmm. um, on the, on the post 9-11 work, uh, there was, a, there was uh, such a heightened degree of sensitivity around that. Mm -hmm. um, and I really had to sort of, you know, reform how I thought about the job and what it meant and the historical significance of it. Um, and so that was probably a, a, that sort of pivoting from being sort of the, the gumshoe G-man to being you know, part of the national security enterprise doing these, you know, counterterrorism uh, interviews after 9-11 and the significance of that. It really had to just turn on a dime in terms of how I scoped the nature uh, of my my job. Yeah, uh, so many important lessons there. One of the ones that leaps out at me is how quickly your career accelerated in that moment. So it was a crisis for the United States, and but in crisis, of course, there's a famous. JFK speech he gave where crisis and opportunity, you know, means opportunity or, you know, their opportunity and crisis are closely linked together and how you were, you stepped up in that moment, but you were ready to step up because you'd put your time in, you know, you knew your job extremely well, you were so technically proficient and you were able to step up in that moment and play a huge role in that. And it sounds like that, is that, am I right in saying that's the big moment that probably accelerated your career uh, to one of the I, top positions. Well, yeah. it, it certainly, yeah. I mean, it was, it was certainly was uh, a feature of the career that, that certainly uh, 
you know, I, I mean, it was many years between that and becoming an executive, but it, it, it was certainly one of the, the highlights. Yeah. But I'll tell you, one of the, the great leadership moments there was we, our SAC, uh, Bill Gore was his name, and he later became the elected sheriff in, in San Diego County, was just such a brilliant, I thought he was just such an effective leader, um, you know, that it's not every leader has an opportunity like a 9-11 attack situation to test their mettle, if you will. Yep. Um, and he was such a steady hand through that. And the fact that, um, you know, he he sort of showed the the trust in me. And you're right, I did have a few years. I mean, I had five years under my belt at that point. Um, but the fact that, you know, he he's he said, you you know, you're you're the one that's going to do this. You know, you're a lawyer, right? Yeah, I'm a lawyer. OK, mm -hmm. I need somebody that's just going to ring this out, you know, really almost do sort of a deposition style interview with this guy. Um, and the fact that he had that confidence in me, yeah. uh, you know, it, it really did help me uh, through some some years that, that he showed that confidence in me sort of say, hey, I'm, I'm ready for this. I'm ready for. Uh, the bigger responsibility, the bigger taskings, the bigger investigations. Um, and then later on, that did lead to, um, I, I think that was sort of a pivot point to your point mm -hmm. um, of getting some bigger investigations. And ultimately, my career out of San Diego um, was uh, the city pension case out there, which I led, which was... Um, essentially an investigation of the municipal government in San Diego and how they were managing uh, their pension fund there. And we indicted many of the, the appointed officials and oh. the mayor resigned and um, it was a big case uh, for us out there. Don't get, but, don't let Adam get on your tail or you're going to pay. Well, or just, or just don't commit crimes. That's or, or that, that's probably the easiest way versus avoiding right. just, just don't do it in the first place. Right. Uh, so one of the, and we don't have too much time left here, Adam, but I'm really curious about this. So stress, leaders deal with stress, FBI. I mean, these situations, 9-11, indicting municipal political leaders. I mean, this is these are some stressful situations. You're on the SWAT. SWAT was a SWAT team for a while, right? So what do you recommend for leaders who, who to uh, cope and deal with stress? You know, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting because I've, I've, um, I've had these conversations a lot with, with leaders because, uh, you know, it is a very stressful environment and there are very unhealthy ways of dealing with stress. Um, and those are, those are the obvious ones. Yeah. Like uh, what? Like drugs, alcohol, right. Not right. doing anything. Right. Been Netflix uh, give, binging. Right. What else? What are the wrong right. ones? <laughs> well, you named a few. Uh, I mean, I've, I've known folks who, you know, have, have just let their health go. Um, and, and for me, mm -hmm. I'm certainly not, uh, you know, I'm, I'm certainly not a, a specimen health wise. I don't compete or do anything like that, but I do work out virtually every day. And, and in terms mm -hmm. of, you know, trying to discipline yourself, to healthy habits and a healthy lifestyle while you're going through this. It's like, you know, there's, I was watching a, a show recently about a guy who was in a, a very unpleasant prison overseas. He was involved in, in narco trafficking and was put in prison 
um, in South America somewhere. I forget, I forget where it was, but he took up yoga, um, hmm. while in prison, he said it was, it was such a stressful environment that he took up yoga and now he's, he's out, he's back, um, back home and he's, he's now a yoga instructor because it, he considered it saved his life. I I'm not into yoga, but just, wow. you know, maintaining, yeah. uh, a healthy lifestyle and doing those things that take you out of the stressful environment and give you an opportunity to sort of cleanse your your mind of all of the things that that it's it's troubled with as you're going through stressful situations. I think it's absolutely critical, um, and I certainly do that. I do that, uh, you know, with with exercise and uh, I mean, it's it it literally sounds. Um, you know, somehow insufficient to say it, but, uh, you know, having hobbies and doing things mm -hmm. that, uh, get your mind out of that mire of stress. And I, I think those are the kinds of things that really truly make you more effective in the long run. Yeah. I love that. Focus on something else outside of work. I know simply, uh, when I'm on the tennis court, I can't focus on my work because I'm right. competing and right. something for someone that can, I mean, some people, it may, it may be yoga to sort of slow your mind down, but for me, just refocusing the energy in a different way gives yep. me a sense of renewal. Yep. You know, or working Absolutely. out can be that way too, of course. It's critical. Cool. All right. Well, fun time today. You know, I only got to just a few questions on my list. I've got a lot more. But uh, wrapping this up, Adam, uh, what's, the, what's the party message for the listeners? You know, I think uh, the theme of everything, Ben, we've talked about is authenticity. Um, and I think the folks that, that if there's one thing in common among uh, sort of all of the, the diversity of, of personalities and disciplines and sub subject matter expertise and, and all of it, the thing that for me was was same for each is just that authenticity, just being mm -hmm. transparent about who you are, what your deficiencies are, what your strengths are, and what your expectations are. Mm. You know, that's that's what sort of builds, I think, an understanding among the workforce that that reports up to you, the folks you work with, and the folks you work for, is that character, competence, and credibility. I, I think, you know the only way you're going to convince folks that you have those three components for leadership is if you're authentic and the way to lose all three is to try and pretend you're something you're not. Great mic drop. <laughs> Great. Thanks, Adam. I appreciate you coming on the show today. Ben, thanks so much. It was fun. If you're an executive at a crossroads in your career and thinking about quitting, do this before you do anything else. Head over to benfanning.com slash quit to receive a free signed copy of my number one best-selling book, The Quit Alternative, The Blueprint for Creating the Job You Love Without Quitting. You'll learn the critical questions you must answer before you make such an impactful decision. Go to benfanning.com slash quit to get this valuable resource for just the cost of shipping. Ben Fanning is a number one best-selling author, Inc. Magazine columnist, and CEO of the Fanning Group, an international consultancy and corporate training company. To learn how they can help your organization, go to benfanning.com.